Welcome to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house. We're giving out prescriptions for better financial health and making smart decisions with your money. We give common sense solutions to your complex problems. And now, here are the doctors. Well, Zach, we're continuing on with this beautiful fall weather. Um, yes. A little bit of rain here this week. Much but, appreciated uh, weather change. Exactly. I enjoy the cool mornings. I do, too. I do, too. It's been a great fall so far. And, uh, yeah, football's carrying on. Um, it is. Georgia's rolling on. I think Georgia looked so good last week. I, I really think they're going to repeat this year. Three years in a row, huh? I, I don't know. I mean, they just look solid at every yeah. position, you know, whereas, I mean, Clemson, you know, did beat. Wake Forest, but they just didn't look that great. And uh, yeah, we'll Alabama doesn't look. Alabama doesn't look good. Obviously, they, yeah, they, uh, different so, playing field this year for sure. It's totally different. So uh, interesting stuff in the sports arena. Yep. And speaking of interesting, we have a couple great topics or interesting topics anyway. I mean, choosing your retirement home um, is one of them we're going to start off with. And uh, Zach, yeah, I mean, a lot of retirees we see they they just they just you know they have this idyllic like. A location that they'll want to retire to mm-hmm. and then when they get there they find out that it's not quite all that they thought it was and right. um, so we're going to talk about the things to look for in a retirement home the things to consider um that you may not have thought of when you when you start picking a retirement destination yeah it's good yeah and the the second thing we'll look at is uh from the wall street journal and it was an interesting piece about um how major cities are are uh, I guess they did a study with 600 kindergartners okay. and they gave them bank accounts and the article talks about what, what they learned, what these kindergartners learned. It started in 2011, so it's hmm. been 12 years and now these kindergartners are going to college and what did they learn participating in this program? So I thought okay. it was a, a good yeah, kind of a feel-good read that I think we can glean some insight into not just saving for kids but also retirement investments and all that stuff. So Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how the effects of... Uh, yeah, starting super early. Sir, yeah, really uh, early. So really helps. So that's great. By the way, I'm Steve Marbert. I'm a certified financial planner and a Dave Ramsey Smart Investor Pro with over 28 years experience in financial planning and investment advice. And I'm Zach Albanese, a certified financial planner and been in the investment world for four years now. We're excited to have you listen to us today on our weekly show. Our podcasts are up every Friday morning. Um, you can also find us on our website, um, moneymd.net, or um, through Richard Young Associates' website. Um, and we're on iTunes, where you can listen to us anywhere in the world. So do check us out there. Send us your your questions as well. Link to us. We'd love to hear from you. Um, and we'll talk about those questions right here on the show. That's right. Well, Zach, we're going to start off here with the financial fact of the week. And um, so, you know, the Fed's been raising rates now for a year and a half, Yeah, right? it's hard to believe, but it's... Year and a half. It's been a long time, right? And they've raised it five hundred and twenty-five basis points, so five and a quarter percent yeah. increase uh, over that last year and a half. And there's a forty percent chance that they're going to do one more rate hike in November. And then most analysts believe that's it. That's it. They'll be done. That'd be good. Exactly. Yeah. So the fact of the week is that after the Fed's past six periods of credit tightening, the S&P 500 rose an average of 13% from that final rate hike huh. to the first cut, which is about nine months on average. The difference of time. Yeah, huh. about nine months. So over a course of about nine months after that last rate hike, S&Ps rose about 13%. And then also it's gone up another 6.5% 
more in the following six months when the Fed started cutting rates. Very interesting. So yeah. total, that's about that's almost twenty percent over about fifteen months yeah. after the last rate hike. So if November is the last rate hike, right, then that would be saying about twenty percent historically, of course. Historically the S and P went up twenty percent what's happened between that period and after the first rate hike that's huh. what happened yeah. in average for the last, six, for the last six. six times yeah right? that's, that's a good average. stat yeah so that's pretty neat that's encouraging yeah so there you go we wanted to throw out something to yeah know, look forward to make you happy right exactly and so speaking of being happy how about retirement um this first topic here is choosing the right retirement home um this is based on an article from um the bottom line inc um christine Benz. um very recently, but Zach, when it comes to where to live, retirees no longer need to be, you know, near their part-time job or, right. or super close to their family. Um, yeah, but the freedom to be more virtually anywhere can open the door to a retirement destination. That's a mistake. Hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, the days of Zoom calls, you know, FaceTime, remote access, are all allowing many retirees to discover the hard way that their favorite vacation spot isn't necessarily the ideal place to 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 live in their golden yeah. years. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so before you pick up, you know, pack up and and move to that idyllic um, you know, beachside resort, give some thought to the five retirement destination considerations that often get overlooked. Um, so we're gonna go through these five here. Um, first one is, you know, your best retirement destination could be a lot closer than you think. Um, because distant destinations, while they hold this exotic lure, um, but they're they they but retiring to such places can be expensive right. and it can strain relationships with friends and family. And it often has drawbacks that aren't apparent until you've actually lived there. Um, you've heard it said that, you know, beauty is only skin deep. Well, you know, that also applies to vacation spots as well, um, unfortunately. You know, once you stay in a location for more than a week, you, you start to see some of the unpleasant parts of that vacation town or community. You know, sometimes it's crime, maybe traffic, um, cost of living, or access to good infrastructure. Hmm. Those can all be issues. So before you make a move to pick to that picturesque, you know, destination, Take multiple extended vacations to the region for several weeks. You yeah, know, that's during, a good idea. During peak vacation time and then also during off-peak time, maybe in the middle of winter. You know, really get a feel for the whole community and the challenges that it could present if you live there. Yeah, because, you know, being able to go somewhere for a couple of weeks is one thing, but envisioning yourself being there for the rest of your life is another. So I think exactly. one other option to consider is, you know, you can stay in the general vicinity of where you already live, but... Maybe move to an area that's less expensive or, you know, since you're older, you don't need a elite school system. You don't need access to downtown as much. You've, you've done all that before. So they're usually less important in retirement. So you can always, you know, take extended vacations to your favorite resort and off seasons to enjoy more of the resort life. Um, and moving to a new community, you might not have the adventure of becoming uh, a part of a new community, but any new community would have been you know, old hat within a few years anyway. So I think one option to consider is stay in the same area, but maybe move to a, um, a, a less expensive part of that area. Yeah, that's a good option. Okay. Uh, yeah, another consideration though for picking a retirement home is taxes. Um, 
you know, in state income tax rates, they really don't tell the whole story about hmm. retirement relocation taxes. Um, um, articles recommending retirement destinations, they often kind of extol the states that have no income, state income tax, hmm. such as Florida and Texas and Tennessee. Um, so while the state's income tax rates are a very attractive and important consideration, you know, there are other tax matters which could be equally important, in, including, you know, how retirement accounts and pension payments and Social Security benefits are taxed. Some states that tax uh, most types of that income um, don't tax certain types of retirement income. For example, um, Illinois, uh, Iowa, Mississippi, Pennsylvania, they don't tax retirement plan distributions and pensions. Mm. Um, you know, but there are states that do tax Social Security benefits as well as earned income. And I'll just say South Carolina and Georgia are two states that kind of go under the radar because they both exempt Social Security. Yeah. And they also give a huge exemption for retirement income right. from pensions or IRA distributions. distributions. That's right. Yeah, that's so, that's important. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. And sales tax is another one that tends to get less attention than income taxes, but sales tax really can take a big toll on your retirement budgets. You know, California, Indiana, Mississippi, Rhode Island, Tennessee, Minnesota, Nevada, they have steep sales tax rates at about 7%, while states like Alaska and Delaware, Montana, or I used to live in New Hampshire, so I knew New Hampshire has no sales tax. And it was great, especially when you bought something expensive and there was no additional uh, it's nice. yeah. no additional fee on that. Another is property taxes. You know, these these rates typically are set by local governments, but they can be much higher in some states than others. Uh, some examples, average effective rates uh, that are above 2% uh, in Illinois, New Hampshire, and Connecticut, but they're around 0.5% or less in South Carolina, Hawaii, Alabama, and Colorado. So take advantage, or take I guess take note of looking at sales tax and property tax as well, right. not just um, the uh, state income tax. Exactly. Yeah. Property taxes are huge nowadays because houses are so expensive, yep. right? So, I mean, gee, if you have a million dollar house, yeah. which a lot, some people do have, that's... Yeah. My property taxes in New Hampshire were almost, they were almost three times what they are here. But there, yeah. Yeah, there was no sales tax. There was no um, income so, tax, but yeah, they hit you on the property tax. Yeah. So you got to look at the whole picture, no doubt. And and estate taxes are one of those too that's kind of goes under the radar because um, most people don't consider estate taxes even a consideration right. anymore because the federal estate tax exemption is $12.9 million. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, very few families need to worry about that. Right. Right. Um, however, um, you know, there are some states, a couple of states that have much lower exemptions like uh, Massachusetts and Oregon. They have estates as small as a million dollars are subject to a state estate tax. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you, you got to be careful about that. Um, and, and the state tax exemption is going to sunset back to half of the yeah, 2026, that, that right? $12 million level yeah, in 2026. So, um, so if you're wealthy, wealthy, you know, I mean, it may be worth your money to move out of, you know, those, mm -hmm. those type states in your latter years. That's something to consider. Um, but housing prices are a big part of the picture for retirement, right? And, um, but it's only one part of the picture. I mean, browsing on a real estate website might tempt retirees to certain parts of the country. 
Uh, you might say, well, look how much home we could afford, yeah. you know, if we move there. Um, but the cost of buying a home isn't the only housing cost component that you need to think about. You know, as, as we talked about above, I mean, property taxes can vary by tens of thousands of dollars per year, depending on local tax rates. You know, in New Jersey, for example, annual average property tax bill is over $10,000, or it's very common. And But homeowners insurance premiums for a $250,000 structure are less than $500 per year mm. in some states like Hawaii, um, but more than $3,000 in Oklahoma and Kansas. You know, utility bills are less than $2,500 per on average in Utah, but more than $4,000 per year in Hawaii, um, New Hampshire, Connecticut, California, Alaska, Virginia, according to a recent study. Of course, the overall cost of living can be dramatically different despite um, the cost of housing. I mean, take Hawaii, for example, where food and gas are about 50% higher than it yeah. is here in the continental U.S. So the point here is you got to take a look at the whole picture before yeah. picking an area for to retire on, particularly based on housing. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. The other um, consideration is access to health care. You know, that should be a major consideration. Even if you don't have major health issues, most people select the retirement destinations when they're in their 60s and still relatively healthy. So the distance to highly rated hospitals and doctors really might not be that high on your list, but it should be because as you climb into the 70s and 80s, the odds of having something that's a little bit more serious uh, is likely to increase. So most large cities, their suburbs have high quality doctors, high quality hospitals, but healthcare is a, a greater challenge for people who retire maybe to more rural areas. So at least bring that into your consideration when, when choosing your retirement destination. Yeah, absolutely. Particularly if you're planning to move abroad, you right. know, um, you know, if you're considering moving to another country, then healthcare picture can, the healthcare picture can be dramatically different and Medicare is not accepted outside the U S yeah, that's right. So, I mean, look at your healthcare options carefully before pulling the trigger on retiring outside the U S or even to a more rural location here in the States. Um, you know, one option to consider is look for an area near a university medical center, uh, many of which are very highly rated yep. for healthcare. So that's a good option. And the last one here to consider is, you know, access to airports and travel, because um, that can be a big plus if you have access to a good airport near your retirement location. You know, as much as you might love the retirement destination you select, you still may want to get away from it occasionally, you know, whether to visit friends or, or, or family or to explore different parts of the world. And there are many airports, you know, almost everywhere. Um, but it's best to be within a few hours of a major airport, you know, and you got to consider the drive time as well. Oh, yeah. um, but I mean, airfares and travel times will vary significantly and can be a lot more reduced if you don't begin and end every journey with a short flight to a regional right, airport. Yeah. yeah. Um, so consider how far of a drive it is that would be from a major airport or hub, even when, um, when, when you're choosing your retirement home. And while it might not be a big issue for you presently, I mean, this can change rapidly as you get grandchildren or your aging parents might need help. Sure. Um, so at some point, you know, you're likely going to want good access to air travel. So consider that carefully when you're choosing your next retirement yeah. home. Yeah, that's and, a good one. Yeah. And so consider all those things. I mean, there's a lot of factors. You just don't want to rush into picking a retirement home. So, uh, 
lot to think about there. Yeah, that's a good good article. And um, and now we have our, our question of the week. And this one, yep. very relevant to this this past week with what's happened this weekend. But um, the question of this week is, what when, what does war in the Middle East mean for the stock market? Ooh, yeah, that's a great question. And that is certainly on on lots of minds oh, yeah. now, isn't it? Um, yeah, I mean, when we look back at history about wars, I, I think what we see in a general as a general trend is that, you know, a war does affect the local market. Sure. You know, so I would, ex- a, yeah. I would expect the stock market in Israel, and I haven't really looked in the past week, I would expect this getting hit. Yeah. You know? oh, yeah. Um, having said that, um, it doesn't tend to, in my experience, it doesn't tend to affect the overall markets, the world markets um, as a whole. You yeah. know? I mean, there's almost always a war going on somewhere. Sure. Right? We've had the Ukraine war going on for a year and a half now. Yeah. And, um, you know, and now we have this this flare up in the Middle East. So hopefully uh, it won't drive down the stock market. Stock market has actually gone up this week. So, yeah. Um, despite that here in, the, here in the U.S. And I think that's generally what you see is the stock market, it, it operates independent of other countries, what's going on in other countries oftentimes, and particularly when it comes to war. So mm-hmm. if it was war here on our shores, certainly that would affect the stock market. But I think given that it's in the Middle East, I don't see that being a big mover yeah. for the stock market here in yeah. the U.S. So, yeah, that's a good question. And uh, excellent yeah, I think question. it's good. All Good right. wisdom. Absolutely. All right. And that brings us to our next topic here. The uh, study of 600 kindergartners who were given bank accounts. Yeah. You know, that's, you got to be careful giving bank accounts to kindergartners. <laughs> I'll say. Yeah. It's, it, like I said earlier, it's, it's kind of a, a feel-good story here, mm-hmm. Steve. You know, we we hear quite often from folks that we meet with how they, they wish they had a better understanding of saving and investing at a younger age. And I saw this article and I was thinking, kindergartners, that's... That, that is a younger age. Let's definitely that'd be a good place to start. And so it looks like there's several major cities that also feel this way, and they have tried boosting financial education and college savings by starting when kids were young, and you know, kindergartners be exact. So this experiment started when um, it was 600 low-income public school students. They were given bank accounts with $50 in 2011. Cool. And as a part of the program. Uh, that expanded the curriculum from reading and writing to understanding interest rates, which, hey, I'm all for kindergartners understanding interest rates. It's good. One of the participants who was featured in this article, and by the way, the, the article is from the Wall Street Journal. She's now 17. She's going off to college. She has $1,500 in her bank account. And although you might be thinking, you know, that's not that much money, it's it's not so much the money that really impacted her and her family. It was the discipline of saving a little bit over many years that taught this individual and her whole family the benefit of uh, and, and importance of saving. So, How cool. Yeah, yeah that, that's great. Yeah, I mean, according to the, this piece in the Wall Street Journal, you know, this changed their whole family's approach to money and saving. You know, before this, they were living paycheck to paycheck, but now, you know, they've seen the benefit of saving and have ramped up their own savings for retirement. Um, sometimes even a small dose of power can of saving can leave a huge impact, you know, in the long run. Yeah. Yeah, it's good. In San Francisco's uh, program, it's called Kindergarten to College Program, for instance, uh, which now gives $50 in savings. Every student has 52,000 active accounts with a total balance of $15 million, $10 million of which came from deposits made by the students and their families themselves. So, the program's aim wow. really is twofold, to be both 
financial education for youth and to seed a small start to college savings. And so this program has actually been replicated in 39 states uh, across the country because of what they did there in in, uh, San Francisco. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, and the need for these programs stems from two of the biggest financial challenges faced by millions of Americans, and that is low financial literacy Mm -hmm. and the skyrocketing cost of higher education. I mean, most Americans, they lack the basic financial knowledge the survey finds. Um, You know, there's a gap that can result in more debt, um, poor savings habits, um, not having enough money for retirement. And college tuition, meanwhile, has averaged $10,950 for in-state students at four-year colleges Mm. here in this past year. And thirty nine thousand four hundred dollars for private, wow. you yeah. know, non nonprofit um, four year colleges, according to the College Board. That's expensive. Yeah, and the uh, the twenty twenty three graduating class of this um, this kindergarten to college program, uh, the first group to have accounts since kindergarten averaged a balance of about fourteen hundred dollars, which is about twenty eight times the initial deposit amount. And while that amount, again, would only cover you know, a tiny fraction of year's tuition, research suggests that low-income families with even a small amount of college savings are significantly more likely to attend and finish college. Uh, one participant of the program said, this program motivated me to go to college and relieve the stress when thinking about college expenses, who said she was going to use the fund to supply um, or to, to help cover travel expenses. So yeah, it's a little, it's a little amount, but even that little amount can make it more willing and and a greater success that you actually complete college. So that, I thought that was uh, very yeah, interesting. Yeah, that's really great. And it's this really gave them a savings boost. I mean, because, you know, what often helps people save for retirement is something that most workers are familiar with. You know, it's an employee match or some sort of initial employer contribution. Um, similarly here, I mean, students are automatically enrolled in kindergarten to college program in the program, and they're given a, a bank account with a $50 balance. And students and their families are then encouraged to build up their savings through various incentives, um, including art competitions, scholarship opportunities for which the winners can earn extra money in their accounts. Um, and like retirement accounts, I mean, these accounts do earn interest but they also have a few restrictions. You know, money can't be accessed until college, and it can only be directed toward higher education expenses. Similar to other child savings programs, it's kind of like a 529 plan in that regard. Yeah, and though these kindergartners get government help with the initial $50 in funding these accounts, you know, not every family participates in the challenge, largely because they forget about the benefits altogether and it's said that the only about a quarter of the families jump in and make something of it, which is a problem because many American school children, you know, have no savings at all. Many of the kids who benefited from this program said they didn't initially see the benefit either, but after going through it, nearly all of them wished they contributed earlier, even if it just was a little bit more um, early on. And so similarly with, with retirement savings, a lot of times you don't really see the impact of the month-to-month savings until you hit retirement age and you think to yourself, wow, I've actually saved that much and I can retire, which is, yeah, you don't notice in the day-to-day, but it's the end goal that that matters. Yeah, absolutely. And the biggest issue proponents of this program have found is, though, is that it's not part of the core curriculum for kids. Right. 
you know, even though financial literacy might be one of the most important skills to teach children, these programs are something extra, you know, meaning that families um, need to intentionally commit to it, um, which we know is hard in life, you know, to commit to something that's totally extra like right. this. So most students give feedback saying they wish the financial literacy was part of their general education. And the most beneficial thing students took away from the program was how discipline saving over a long term ends up, you know, being this snowball effect that made them want to save more and more, which is something that we see the power of every day, you know, especially in our younger clients. You know, once you get started and you start seeing those balances oh, yeah. grow, yeah, it's, it's contagious. It's, it's, yeah, it's contagious, addictive to that you can do more and more. And yeah, so we obviously encourage that. So, you know, overall, as, as we read this piece and learned about the program, you know, I was encouraged because I always love when parents and communities prioritize and incentivize saving. I think it's really important to teach younger people this especially. And I really hope programs like this continue to help kids build a, a better habit and discipline of saving because, you know, as the article pointed out, financial literacy is is not something we should assume. It's it's actually quite sad. It's the, it's the opposite. Um, so the big takeaway for me was similar to what these kids learned is small, consistent contributions, whether it's to an education fund, savings account, retirement account, general investment account. It, it starts to build that necessary motivation to make saving money something you'll do for the rest of your life. And um, I know that John, our other advisor here, he has his uh, My Why Foundation, and you can go check it out at mywhyfoundation.org. But he has a program similarly where yeah. you we'll, we'll give you some seed money to invest. We just want to help people start that investment journey. And um, uh, so ch yeah, check it out, my, mywhyfoundation.org. It's just a very simple program to get you started if you if you have no clue where you're at. But I highly recommend it. It helped these kindergartners learn how to save. And I really think it'll be beneficial for you too. So yeah, just getting that momentum, you know, getting yeah. started is usually the biggest hurdle. And uh, that's a great program that yeah. really, yeah. you know, has done that for these kids and, and likewise for adults with mawafoundation.org. So that's great. All right, and that brings us up to our final thing here, and that is the prescription of the week. Yeah, prescription of the week is what is CPI? So CPI is the Consumer Price Index. Yep. And it's important, yeah. especially in these last year and a half since the Fed has been raising rates, um, they are trying to combat inflation. We knew that inflation right. hit 9.1% June of 2022. It's come down significantly. It's just above 3% today, which is which is good and much healthier but it's important to know what composes what's compri what comprises CPI. And so really, it's just a basket of general goods. There's about 30. Um, but really, it's like it's groceries, it's clothing, it's bread, milk, eggs, those sorts of things. And CPI is just a comparison of what those prices were, you know, let's say uh, October of 2022 yep. to October of 2023. And they track it every month. Right. And it's recorded all online. And it's public. It's not like very, a secret yeah, number. Yeah, it's very public. And so you can just see that it's just a, the difference, a change in price from one year to the to the next. And so um, the fact that it's down from where it was last October, or I guess September was the last numbers we had, is a good sign. Um, we just want to see that. I think the Fed's goal is at two and a half. Is it two percent or two and a half? Two percent. Two percent's their yeah. goal. Right now, it's a little above three. But yeah, I think where we were last June and July of nine and high eight percent. Right. We've come a long way. But yeah, that's the CPI. It's important to know what it is and how we calculate it. Um, and yeah, you can look online and, and see what it's at at any given 
moment. So yeah, and that's the primary measure of inflation. That's right. In the yep. U.S., is a consumer price index, and uh, yeah, it's like you said, it's very public. And it's just a sample of of goods and services that are yeah. included, you know, to measure inflation. But um, you know, I think it's it's very representative and it's not manipulated. It really is just a basket that's yeah. very public, like you said. Yep. But, yeah. uh, but we're on the right path. Hopefully that'll continue to come down. And um, yeah. I think the worst is certainly behind us with the uh, yeah, I do too. rise in inflation. So yeah, good, fa- good fact of the, well, prescription. prescription. Of yes, the week. it was a good All fact right. of the week too, though. Yeah, yeah. it was. <laughs> All right, well, that brings us to a close with this week's edition of Money MD. Tune in next week to hear more prescriptions for your financial health. Check us out on our website, moneymd.net, where you can send us your questions and link to us there. Or you can give us a call at Richard Young Associates at 706-739-0725. Thanks for listening and have a great rest of your week. Yeah, have a good one. Material in this program is intended for general information only and should not be taken as specific investment tax or legal advice. None of the information contained in this broadcast is intended by the host to be a solicitation for the purchase or sale of any security. All hosts are representatives of Richard Young Associates and registered investment advisors.